UCB Life Issues with Paul Hammond. And as always, a very warm welcome to this week's Life Issues. Now, many years ago, I had the opportunity and the privilege to go to Marrakesh. Sounds exotic, doesn't it? Well, it did to me. And in fairness, it was wandering through the souk in the walled city, all the smells and the sounds and the ambience that was so different to dear old Blighty, even coming face to face with Bill Clinton. But that's a story for another time. And I realised before I went that although they speak French, my CSE grade five wasn't going to get me very far. So I decided to learn a little bit of Arabic. I learned how to say no in a way that wouldn't offend. I practiced my shukran, which is thank you. I even mastered a greeting, assalamu alaikum. I learned gestures that meant sincerity and gratitude. My wife bought a scarf to cover her head, which brought nods of approval from the women in the square who were equally tutting at the more holiday-dressed tourists. And why did we do that? Not because we expected to be taken for locals, but we felt it was right to make at least some effort to respect local language, local values, local culture. And of course, in Morocco, that is predominantly Muslim. So if I did that going on holiday, shouldn't I, especially as a follower of the prophet Isa, Jesus, make the same effort for the Muslims who live in my street, in my town, work in my office, drive my taxi. Effort to understand a little more, connect a little more meaningfully and show the love, grace, power and truth of Isa wherever I go, who he is, what he has done and how his message is for all. This week, our Life Issues asks... How do I connect my faith with my Muslim neighbours? And does the call to be a witness come with an exemption clause when you're talking to a Muslim? My guest is Dr Andy Bannister. He is the director of SOLAS and among many other roles, he is also the adjunct research fellow at the Centre for the Study of Islam and Other Faiths at Melbourne School of Theology. He also numbers amongst his books one entitled Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God? So do they, Andy? Well, uh, thanks for that introduction, uh, Paul. And uh, yeah, what a great, what a great question. And the funny thing is, when I when I came, when, that, when that book came out uh, last last year, Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God? It was amazing that I got two sort of opposite reactions on social media. I had some people jumping on me saying, "Why on earth do you have to publish that book?" The answer is obviously no. And another bunch of people jumping on me saying, "Why have you published that book?" The answer is obviously yes. <laughs> that were the two opposite reactions told me it was a conversation to to have here yeah. so that, that, that to get the longer answer poor people need to buy the book otherwise Ivy, if I just told them the answer <laughs> IVP will come after me with a, with a sharp stick um, but in a nutshell the answer I'm going to be a bit naughty and say the answer is is 85% uh, no and 15% yes so to unpack what I mean um, the question has a lot of things built into it to me to sort of unpack it slightly mm. if we ask the question in a, slight, in a slightly revised way. If we say, does the Quran describe the same God as the God of the Bible? I think the answer is a, is a categoric no. My expertise academically is the Quran. My PhD is in Quranic studies. When you dive into Quranic theology and you look at the nature of God in the Quran, 
compare it with the nature of God in the Bible. Very, very different. And if you want to, we can we can press into that in a moment. However, however, do you meet Muslims who, in their own way, are striving to reach out for the God of the Bible? I think you do. And a good example of this would be that one of the category, categories that's absolutely different between the Quran and the Bible is the Quran is very clear that God is not a God of love. That is not a term described to God in the applied to God in the Quran. Whereas, of course, the God of the Bible is a God of love. That's made clear time and time again. When I meet Muslims who tell me they are interested in, they are drawn to, they believe in a God of love, rather than turn around and go, no, you don't, you've got it wrong. I will always try and say to them, look, I agree with you. God is a God of love. But the God you're describing, the God you're, you're reaching out for, that's the God of the that's the God of the Bible. Let me tell you more about him. In other words, I'm doing what Paul does in Acts 17 in Athens with the altars of the unknown God. So there are definitely Muslims who are reaching out, who are yearning for the God of the Bible, even though at that point he may be the unknown God. They may not know who he is. And they're the ones I particularly want to reach out and embrace and say, come on home. Um, but does the Quran describe the same God? No. So where are the the similarities then? Because I mean, in my introduction, I mentioned the fact that there is, the reference to the prophet Isa is mm. Jesus in the 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 idea the the panoply of Islam, mm. and there is a reference about respecting the people of the book and respecting the book as well, which is the Bible, the the scriptures of both Judaism and Christianity. So, mm. where do the where is the crossover, and where is there yeah. confusion? Not in terms of an Great. exhaustive study, but just some hints. Well, let me give you a ninety minute lecture. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, they but. There is, there's definitely a lot, a lot of confusion. And of course, that, that confusion is sown by the fact that the Quran uses the same words we use as Christians and often means quite different things by them. And in fact, the one question, you know, the, what, part of your first question I didn't, I didn't actually answer was you said, why does it matter? But I think it matters because obviously, you know, as Christians, we talk to our Muslim friends. They say they believe in God. We say we believe in God. The trap is that you can fall into is assuming it's the same. Whenever I meet a Muslim or a person of any other faith, actually, who uses the word God, I always want to say, oh, great. Yeah. Tell me about God. What kind of God do you believe in? What is God like to you? And um, where, where there are similarities, absolutely affirm them. Where there are differences, say, well, that's interesting. We, we believe something different. Isa is a case in point, actually. I'm really glad you, you mentioned that because I did think about that during your introduction. Obviously, the Quran does talk about Jesus. He's mentioned by name about 20 times. Um, and he's mentioned in general about 90 times. And Isa is the Arabic word used there in the Quran for Jesus. That's for a long time caused scholars lots of confusion because that's not a that's not a straightforward Arabization of Jesus's name because Jesus in Hebrew, of course, is Yeshua, um, and that, tra that, that that there's the equivalent to that in Arabic. It's not Isa, and there's there's no end of debate. I don't think scholars are ever going to figure out what what the answer is. Isa is actually closer to the Arabic name Esau. And there's one theory that it was Muhammad actually asked the Jews, who do the Christians worship? And the Jews, who had obviously when it were, you know, at loggerheads with the Christians in Arabia, um, simply said, oh, yeah, they worship Esau. They worship Isa. And Muhammad didn't know what he was talking about. Um, but what I would say is that the Jesus in the Quran is a sort of cardboard cutout compared to the, 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 the full-blooded figure of the Gospels. The Jesus of the Quran, we know very little about him. The Quran tells us he did some miracles. It tells us he taught people. Um, the Quran's very interested in the virgin birth. There are two extended virgin birth stories. Um, not a lot of detail. We're told he's crucified, um, but the Jews didn't succeed in killing him, and there's nothing about the resurrection. And the difference is actually, it's such, I think, a sort of, sort of shallow presentation. I'm always very careful of saying, 
I think as Christians, we need to be careful about using the word Isa, because mm. Isa implies in the Muslim mind, the Isa of the Quran, who is up quite different from the Jesus of, of the Bible, both theologically and in fact, historically, because there are 700 years between, well, almost 700 years between the Gospels and the time of the Quran. And the Quran is written in a different culture, different time, different place by someone who knew nothing about the, the biblical Jesus other than a few bits and pieces secondhand. So again, it's another area where we get a bit sort of suckered by the fact that the Muslims say they believe in Jesus. Um, so what, I, again, I want to do, I want to do an Act 17 with Muslims and say, hey, you know, the Quran talks about the teaching of, of Jesus. You know, do you know any of the things he taught? And most Muslims aren't aware of them and say, well, would you be interested in hearing one of the stories that, that Jesus taught? He liked to teach in parables. And then, of course, you're into the into the Bible. Um, so, yeah, so to so I would say we want to start with perhaps the terminology that's in common. God, Jesus, prophets, sin, revelation, scripture. Ask our Muslim friends what they believe about those things. But find ways to build bridges from those mm. over to the Bible, because particularly when it comes to God, Paul, I would say once you get beyond which is the stuff that is implied simply once you say you believe in one powerful creator God, obviously that implies a few things, whatever you believe. Once you get beyond those very bare essentials, Islam is an utterly different faith tradition. And I don't say that to be derogatory or negative. Actually, in one sense, I, I say it's respect Islam and the Quran and to go, we need to let it be its own thing, mm. not try and force it into a, into a Christian frame. And it seems to me that you, I mean, the way that you do your work, the way that you write your books, the way that you do your ministry, and I know that you've spoken at many sort of debate-type in, environments, but it does seem to me that, that you, you believe it's important for us to have conversations with those around yes. us who follow, not just Islam, but other faiths as well, to actually not just proclaim to them the truth that they might hear but actually listen to their perspective as well. Yeah, it's funny you should say this because this morning I was busy working away because I've got, I've got COVID as we record this time, sort of, I'm sort of restrained to barracks, confined to barracks. And so I was working away my next book and I'm writing a, a chapter in this book on evangelism, on the importance of friendships and character. And I tell a couple of stories in, in, in there because amazing things happen when we're willing to actually build friendships across the barriers. So on the, on the Muslim side of things, um, you know, when I was in Canada, I lived in Canada before I moved back to the UK. And one of the last things I did before I came back to the UK in 2016 was I, I had a, another Christian friend, did this big dialogue event at one of the local mosques, one of the biggest mosques in Toronto, actually. And we had a thousand people out that night, 600 Muslims, 400 Christians, amazing uh, event, two hours of speeches and then three hours of Q&A. Um, it was a long, old evening. Um, and some Muslims came to Christ, actually, as a result of that event. But what is fun, that event, that huge dialogue event had started about nine years before when one of the associate pastors at the church that was involved in it was in a local shopping centre. He'd gone into I say, a sort of heel bar or something to get his shoes repaired, got chatting to the guy behind the counter who was a Muslim. And they, they hit it off. They got on quite well. So they started meeting for coffee and discussing the Bible and the Quran, built a friendship, played sport together, became really good friends. And during the course of that, realized that his mosque and his church were like two blocks away from each other. So they hit upon this idea of why don't we start a dialogue event and get our peoples talking? And the first one, I think, had about 100 people in it. And by about year five or six, it had grown so big it couldn't fit in the church anymore because it was alternating venues. So they agreed to just have it in the Muslim mosque because it was bigger. And then by the time I came along and did, the, did one of the events for them, they up to 1,000. And that had all started. And there was all kinds of fruit from that. It all started because a Christian befriended a Muslim that he met while getting his shoes repaired. 
Uh, and so I think amazing things can happen. And some people w- would say, you know, it's good to befriend people of other faiths so that we can tell them our truth. And while telling them our truth is absolutely critical, I get a sense from the way that you shape it that actually friendship for friendship's sake is the foundation that we build, not friendship as a means to an end. Yeah, I think the interesting thing is, I think if you form a friendship for friendship's sake, and you are a Christian who is living out what it means to be an ambassador of Christ, and we all make mistakes, no one's perfect. So I don't, I don't want people hearing that you have to be, be perfect like you are, Paul, um, ah. you know, to go, <laughs> you're nodding, that worries me. <laughs> we fumble our way through life, we make mistakes, because that's what grace is all, all about. Then actually, Jesus will naturally spill over into those friendships. And I think actually it works better almost evangelism when people see that you really, really care about them. Cause I think you're right. There are two mistakes that we can fall into as Christians. One is we just see people as evangelism fodder and they quickly, they quickly see through that. And I think I, I've met people who are very suspicious of Christians because they feel like they've been adopted as a project. The other mistake is to go the other way instantly and be so concerned about being friends that you never dare mention anything about your faith because you're afraid that you'll damage the friendship. The middle ground is going, how do I reach out to those around me, build genuine friendships with people right across the spectrum of beliefs and weave Jesus naturally into those. Be, be, be a natural Christian and, uh, and, bring, and don't be afraid of bringing Jesus in. But also if your friends, you know, you've been friends for 10, 15 years with somebody and they don't show any signs of coming close to Christ, you don't drop them off the next bridge and move on to the next project. You're in there for the long term. And of course, I think the, one of the, there's many places in the scriptures that I think talk about this. One of my favorite verses is, you know, Matthew 5, where Jesus talks about Christians being salt and, 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 and light. And the salt piece is interesting, of course, because as you probably know, in the ancient world, salt was a preservative. It was before people had in, invented refrigerators or fast food restaurants to discover you can make food out of plastic. And, uh, you know, we preserve things with salt. But salt had to have contact to do its effect. Yes. And I think there's something about Christianity that has to have contact, uh, sometimes prolonged contact, to have that kind of preservative and transformative effect. And, of course, Jesus modeled this. I would say, look at the people that Jesus hung out with. I mean, he hung out with tax collectors. He hung out with, you know, Pharisees. He hung out with prostitutes and drunkards. Even in his close-knit circle of disciples, we had James and John who were always killing each other. We had Matthew, the tax collector. We had Simon, the zealot. The zealots were terrorists. Um, So Jesus modeled this for us. And of course, he had Judas who ultimately let the side down. Now, Jesus knew what was going to happen. He didn't throw Judas off the bus, even though he knew what was going to happen so maybe there's something in there about the way that jesus treated people that we can learn from so why is it do you think because i in my introduction i mentioned that many christians kind of hope that there's an exemption clause to the command to make disciples and to to preach the gospel to all nations that actually if i'm talking to my muslim neighbor i think there's an exemption clause in terms of of sharing my faith and witnessing to them why do we so often shy away from trying to actively reach out to Muslims. The, the funny thing is here, Paul, the funny thing is, I, I'll, I'll say a couple of words about why I think we're afraid. Muslims are some of the easiest, because look, if you're, you know, if you've got a, a, you know, a friend at work or a neighbour or someone you hang out with who's an atheist or a, or a sceptic or an agnostic or just a sort of average run-of-the-mill sort of nominal Brit, um, starting conversations can be quite tough. With a Muslim, it's not difficult. I've always said to say to people, the way you start a conversation with a Muslim is simply to say, hey, you know, 
forgive me for asking, but you're, you're a Muslim, right? They're, they're not going to say no because they're quite usually very confident in their faith. And you say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I don't know much about Muslims. Tell me what do you believe? And you're off and you just ask questions. And eventually there'll come a time where they probably ask you what you believe, or there's a very natural point in the conversation where you can say, this is fascinating because, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. We believe in different things. It's not difficult. The reasons though, I think we find evangelism in general tough, twofold really. Firstly, we've allowed uh, the culture to tell us that faith is a private thing. So many of us have privatized our faith. You know, here in the UK, it's generally acceptable to be religious, but you do that at home. You know, you don't take that into the public square, be that work, university, wherever faith goes on in the four walls of your home. And I think we've bought into that. And one of the things I think, I think actually we can learn from Muslims, Muslims are pretty good actually at not being private mm. about their faith, mm. it, right down to the way they dress, the way they are. I really admire that actually. And I think we could learn a lesson from our friends there. So I think the privatization of faith. And then secondly, the fear thing it's fear that holds us back i think back to when i was in the secular workplace for you know some years why did i not share my faith reactively i didn't i came into that later in life i was afraid i was afraid of what people would say i was afraid of looking stupid i was afraid of making god look bad i was afraid of perhaps getting in trouble in my career running into issues afraid of standing out from the crowd afraid of being asked a question i didn't answer and in fact the book i'm writing right now which is due out for release next year is called how to talk about jesus without looking like an idiot and it's um hopefully a kind of you know bluffer's guide to evangelism but, the, <laughs> but it starts that whole question of, of fear why, why we're afraid and some ways we can overcome that yes you 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 don't shy away from thought-provoking titles for your books do you uh is part of the thing <laughs> that that we I wonder if when we think about sharing faith with somebody from the Muslim faith, part of the problem is that we carry unhelpful assumptions about Islam and that colours <laughs> our fear or colours our hesitancy. Yeah, I would definitely I would definitely agree with that. I mean, one, of course, we, we've touched on a little bit, if, if somebody's labouring under the under the sort of misconception that Islam and Christianity are essentially the same, that, you know, Muslims are like Baptists, but just with beards and burqas, then obviously that's going to hinder your evangelism because you're going to feel a bit of a jerk, really, for, you know, these guys are basically the same as ours. Why am I showing my faith with them? Isn't that terribly arrogant and post-colonial and all kinds of things? So there's that issue. The other way I think that Christians sometimes go, particularly in perhaps more, you know, conservative ends of the ends of the church is we can sort of pick up this idea that's still around in the not, not as widespread as it was but still around in the culture that islam muslims are basically extremists and they're a group to be afraid of and, and fearful sometimes for christians who love their country you know we can we get our politics and our theology a little bit too close together our american friends do this quite a lot but we're not mean from this in the uk so the whole immigration thing comes in we you know if we're concerned about you know over immigration and and the way the country's changing and then that gets sucked in even subconsciously into how we view our muslim friends rather than as i say on that one i often say to people look whatever you think about immigration that's a there's a it's perfectly okay as a christian to have views and discuss that issue as long as you're in a friendly way what i would say is jesus did say go make disciples of all nations and it used to be the case that was quite expensive now he saved us the airfare by bringing <laughs> them all here um so i think it's an amazing privilege actually that you can share the gospel with different nations just by walking down the street in many parts of the of the uk maybe we should see it as an opportunity rather than as a as a as a threat do flip side of that coin then do muslims yes. sometimes have 
unhelpful assumptions about Christians? And if so, how do we tackle those? Because I get a sense that for many Muslims, including Muslims that are sort of second, third generation here in the UK, the westernized impression that they have of Christianity can be it can be hurtful to the truth that we're trying to convey. I think I think you're absolutely right. And in fact, there's a there's a talk I sometimes do called um, called mutual misconceptions between Muslims and Christians. In fact, remember sort of uh, COVID messes with your, with your, with your head space and diaries. I think about three years ago, I had the privilege of actually being asked by the Islamic Society at Edinburgh University to come and do that that talk because they were doing some you know quote unquote interfaith stuff and they'd landed on me and basically in that talk i start by talking about where christians have misconceptions so the ones i've just mentioned mm. i talk about the fact that you know believing that all muslims are extremists a misunderstanding how muslim how islam and politics fit together because muslims do collapse religion and politics together and misunderstanding the place of of muhammad and therefore misunderstanding why muslims get so upset when they perceive them to be insulted but then i flip it over and go now the misconceptions that christian muslims have of christians i'm a bit naughty here because these are i make these slightly uh, line up in a way that takes you nicely into the gospel. But I start with the one that you've talked about, that a lot of Muslims think that, you know, the West is Christian and so have so many misconceptions about it, um, either because, as I say, they, they just in their heads think the West is Christian or they come from Muslim contexts where the state and the religion are sort of the same thing. And then they get vague idea there are bishops in the House of Lords and an established church and the Queen and the head of the church and all this other stuff. So I, I like to disentangle that one um, and talk about the fact that being a Christian is that, personal commitment to, to follow Christ. Then I talk about the misconception that many Muslims have about the Bible. Many Muslims have been taught to believe the Bible has been corrupted. Um, that's an idea you put you hear put around in lots of mosques, lots of Muslim, you know, books and so forth will teach Muslims that. Um, corrupted so like in what way? Off. Well, so the, the, the issue is this, um, Paul, that Muhammad claimed that he was preaching and teaching the same message as 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 jesus and all the prophets who've come before him uh, you know the quran you see that idea repeated in the quran time and, and time again but when muhammad was was uh, preaching and teaching his, his public ministry ran from 610 to 632 a.d at that point in history the bible had not yet been translated into arabic um and in arabia was also a pretty much an oral society at that point so basically nobody could check then when uh, muhammad dies and the Islamic conquests begin and Islam expands rapidly out of Arabia and begins conquering former Christian uh, territory, North Africa, for example, uh, and elsewhere. Very quickly, Muslim scholars um, got their hands on the Bible, began debating with Christians and discovered horror of horrors that the Bible and the Quran were not the same message. They were profoundly different. And thus they were forced uh, to a choice. Either they had to say that Muhammad got it profoundly wrong. Or, and this is the route they took about 200 years into, mm. into the Islamic era, okay, the Bible's been corrupted, it's been changed. Jews and Christians have changed it. The original message preached by Jesus, preached by Moses or whatever, was the same as the Quran. And so many Muslims today have been taught that idea. Um, and so I say I always like to sort of you know tackle that when I'm addressing particularly a Muslim audience. Even helping them see where it came from in history is interesting because the Quran doesn't make that. That accusation and then lastly i always want, want to raise the, the misunderstandings that muslims have around jesus because of course muslims believe that what has happened is christians have taken jesus who they believe to have been just a man just a prophet and we have started worshiping him we have elevated a man to deity and committed what is um islam the, the ultimate sin they are not aware of the claims that jesus made 
which led Christians to conclude this. Christians didn't just randomly worship Jesus. It was a response to what Jesus said and taught and did. And Muslims are usually unaware of that. And in a sense, you can understand why those misconceptions, you know, a corrupted message, a, mm. a, a, a revering of Jesus to deification that he didn't either ask for or warrant, you can understand why they would cause offence to someone who was a committed, devout Muslim in the same way that, that the similar ideas might cause offence to us. So it's important to treat those perspectives with respect and yet at the same time yeah, yeah. to bring truth. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I almost the way you ask the word respect, you know, you, you were sort of, sort of weren't sure if you were pushing the envelope a bit. I agree with you totally. In the same way that I respect my atheist friends. Um, you know, I've had the privilege of, of dialoguing with a few leading atheists, you know, most famously Peter Singer, probably one of the world's most well-known atheist ethicists. You know, Peter believes stuff that, you know, I think is, you know, absolutely left field crazy. Um, I'd say that if he was here. Um, but I would respect it because he believes it passionately. The same when it comes to my Muslim friends. I think we have to, you can respect the person without respecting the belief that that was interesting that's got collapsed in our culture today which has caused no end of problems yeah. culturally um it's persons who are worthy of respect ideas we can disagree with whole wholeheartedly but because i want to you know at the end of the day this is not some battle of ideas it's not about winning an argument it's about winning the person and if a, yeah whatever a muslim tells me i always want to try and understand why they why they believe that if a really helpful book in this respect is you may have come across um there's a late uh, friend of mine died a few years ago now called Nabil Qureshi. Nabil was a, was a Muslim convert from, um, from Muslim Islam to Christianity. And his book, his testimony, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, was a New York Times bestseller. And if listeners haven't uh, ever read it, hugely recommend getting a copy, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Because what Nabil does so brilliantly at the start of that book is he, you, he helps you understand why he was so passionate about Islam. There's a lot of testimonies you know, from people from other faiths where, you know, it almost sounds like you wonder why they, they, they'd have ever believed it. But Nabil helps you understand why he was passionate, what he what he was proud of as a Muslim, why he thought this stood up and, and was robust. And then as the story goes on, you begin to see the cracks mm. develop. Um, yeah, I think if we're not careful, we can sort of con ourselves that my Muslim friends are sitting there going, oh, my beliefs don't really make sense. I just can't wait for the Christian to come and tell me the true way. Um, whereas, you know, for our Muslim friends, they believe we're the ones who are, are deceived. And they say, I, res I respect that. Disagree, but respect it. So what are some of the, the questions then that we should be preparing ourselves to answer? I, I suppose what it is, if I'm, if I'm building, like you've talked about, if I'm build, building a friendship with my mm. Islamic neighbour and we are starting to have conversations, what are the sort of areas that are common questions that Muslims might have mm. about my faith? Well, we've, we've, we've touched on a few, so we can go into a little, a little more detail. And obviously, you know, one question may be, you know, why, why Christians are so kind of lax in their, in their morality and their standards, because if they assume that the West is Christian, uh, they will look at some of the, you know, some of the nonsense we see in the media and assume that we are, you know, we are in favour of, you know, sort of, you know, pornography, lax sexual standards, drug taking, those whatever. And it can be very helpful to sort of, you know, be ready to sort of talk about the fact this is not a, this is not a Christian country. What I have found actually helpful is, um, you know, given that, the, that actually, you know, the internet has spread all kinds of nonsense all over the place, is to sort of point out that, you know, just as they would be upset by if you took some example of something that's gone wrong in the Muslim world and assume that's Islam, 
Um, you know, it's interesting that I read something recently that, uh, you know, Google every year publish statistics for, you know, searches around the world yeah, and what terms yeah. are searched from where. Some of the stuff that's searched from the Middle East, the Middle East often tops the record for searches for really quite nasty sexual stuff on the Internet. Um, it would be wrong for me to go, ah, oh, therefore, right, okay, you know, this Islam means this. Um, equally, things like terrorism, actually, if you're talking to a more moderate Muslim and say, you know, presumably you'd be outraged if I assumed that Islam equaled terrorism because, you know, bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, Saudis, and my Muslim friend would go, well, of course, absolutely, right. Likewise, in the same way, we have the same issue here. So be ready for that one. Um, the Bible is the next one I'd say, uh, Paul, you know, I mentioned that before. I think we need to be ready to address that one. Um, you know, in First Peter three fifteen, it says always be always be prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that you have. So, with our Muslim friends, we need to be prepared. So, be ready for what happens if they say the Bible is not reliable. There are lots of great books you can read on that. Go to the Solas website; lots of resources. Or the approach I sometimes take, very simple approach. Even though I, you know, I studied a lot of this stuff for years and, and could draw on heavier stuff. Sometimes the simple stuff is the most effective. Sometimes when a Muslim friend says to me they believe the Bible has been corrupted. I will look at them and say, okay, so you're, you're telling me that the scriptures that came before the Quran are corrupted, changed, unreliable. Yes, they say. Okay, help me out. Is that, did the Bible become corrupted because, because Allah was too weak to prevent, protect his scripture? Or was he too callous that he couldn't be bothered? You know, humans needed this, but he was doing something else. He was, I don't know, he was off playing, playing, you know, cribbage with the angels or something. You know, which was it? Do you believe in a God who is callous or a God who is powerless? That sort of forces them onto the horns of a dilemma um, because there really isn't an alternative option there. And then allows me to press in slightly and say, look, I believe in a God whose word stands forever. I believe in a God who is well capable of protecting scripture. I think you believe in that same God too, but you might just want to be careful about the arguments you use because you've described to me a God who sounds pretty incompetent, frankly. Uh, and that can be interesting um, to sort of push things that way. And then with Jesus is the other one as well. Paul is the third one. You know, obviously Muslims, you know, have very different beliefs about us to Jesus. So again, need to be ready to explain why it is that you believe Jesus to be who, who he is. One thing I will do there is often use that as an opportunity for a brief Bible study. And the, and the, and the gospel I will often use, uh, and it's nice because it's short, is Mark's gospel. Mm. Because in Mark chapter one, you have John the Baptist preparing the way in the desert. And then in, in the book of Isaiah, which Mark is quoting from there, it's Yahweh who comes down that way that's being prepared. In Mark chapter one, it's Jesus. Mark chapter two, we have the famous story, the paralytic lowered through the roof. Remember the story, Jesus forgives the man, the man, the man's sins. The, the teachers of the law go nuts. I often turn to Muslims and say, why do you think they got upset? And Muslims will often get it. Well, because he forgave the guy's sin and he got yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. See what Jesus does next. Um, chapter three, we have Jesus declaring himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. So that's Lord of space and time. It's Lord over the, the very sacred structure of time itself. And again, the, the religious leaders get it and, and go nuts. Example after example through Mark's gospel, he, you know, the, the stilling of the storm and so on, all of these things. And then often say to Muslims, look, I'll culminate of course in Jesus before the before Caiaphas, the high priest, where Jesus asks, Are you the son of the most high? And uh, Jesus doesn't say no, which is the obvious answer to say if you're on trial for blasphemy. But he quotes that passage from Daniel about the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, which the, the, the chief priest you know, rends his robe and says, crucify the guy. Then I say to Muslims, if he stayed dead, we'd have had a dead Jewish blasphemer. He made these outrageous claims about himself and he got him crucified quite rightly. And he stayed dead, but he didn't stay dead, did he? You know, the gospel is very clear that he rose dramatically from the grave. 
vindicating everything he'd said. That, I say to Muslims, that is why Christians believe who Jesus is. It's the claims, it's the actions, it's the deeds backed up by the resurrection. So be ready to, to, to walk your Muslim friend through that. You can do Bible studies with Muslims. You know, doing Bible studies with atheists is tough. Muslims are open to reading scripture together. Use that opportunity. And when you talk in those sorts of terms, I, I suspect that many Christians will think, oh no, I could never, I could never invite a Muslim into my house to to do a Bible study. I, I could it would, it would get them in trouble with the, the mosque. It would get me all sorts of things said about me. Um and, and it might even get me in trouble with church. Why are you you mixing with these Muslims? I could never do that. But the truth is your experience and, and and we've talked around this before but you your experience is that actually there is often a greater willingness within the muslim community to talk to hear us than there is for us as christians to hear them oh my yes uh one of my favorite stories in this i got got a, got a friend of mine who for some years had worked with a with a muslim at work and finally decided after some years of working with a guy that, you know, maybe he ought to invite him and his wife around for a meal. So the Muslim colleague and his wife came and had dinner with my friend and his wife. They had a lovely time. And it wasn't long before the conversation over dinner got onto faith-based things. It came up very kind of naturally in the course of the conversation. They had an amazing kind of evening together that ran late into the, into the night. But what was interesting is they were leaving at the end of the evening. The Muslim colleague at the door turned to my friend and said, well, you know, thank you so much for inviting us. He said, you know, I've lived in this country for 25, 30 years. This is the first time I've ever been inside a Christian home. And it kind of blew my friend away, really, yeah. because, I mean, A, that somebody could be in this country for that long and not meet a Christian. But then the fact that he'd also worked with him for 10 years and, and hadn't invited him. So, you know, it was very easy. My friend said the conversation just naturally got round to faith things. It just sort of, It just sort of came up. Uh, really so muslims are very open to this and on the on the study piece one way into this instant if you have muslim friends and you're getting to know them i mean the first thing i'd say is hospitality don't don't leap straight into let's have a bible study why not just you know for listeners if you've got a muslim friend or neighbor why not start by inviting them for a meal and if you're not sure what to cook because of halal stuff serve vegetarian you know go vegan or vegetarian for the night um can't go wrong um but once you get to know them a little bit, you know, I found a very natural way it is to actually do a Quran and Bible study. So to them, look, you know, I don't know much about the Quran. I guess you probably don't know much about the Bible. Why don't next time we meet for coffee, why don't you bring your favorite Quran passage and tell me a bit about it? Because I'd love to know what it says and why you are drawn to it. And I'll tell you my favorite Bible passage and we'll talk about that for a bit. Um, really, really easy. And trust me, when that happens, you normally spend more time talking about the Bible because Muslims don't actually do Quran study in the way we do Bible study. Um, so if you know even a little bit about the Bible, you'll have something to talk about. But one resource, actually, we should mention, um, Paul, is um, for folks who want to go a bit deeper into like befriending Muslims, there's a wonderful organization called the Mahaba Network. Mm. And um, kind of thing, if you, Paul, you know, I've got sort of friends who are involved with that. Brilliant resource and networks of, of Christians who are working on befriending Muslims. So mahabanetwork.com, uh, M-A-H-A-B-B-A network.com. And there's lots of resources, opportunities to, to get you befriending Muslims. But yeah, start with hospitality. Take that step of, of actually getting to know a Muslim. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the, all the things that you've said as we've gone through this together, I mean, the basic premise at the beginning that we ha we had was that, that Christians should think more seriously about reaching, befriending, connecting with their Muslim neighbours. But often we're afraid to. And yet, if we are prepared, if we are 
open if we are willing to see and respect people as people rather than get hung up on the the ideas that they disagree with us about that actually this starts to become just very natural and this sort of relation centric evangelism becomes as much about building the relationship as it does about creating the opportunity for evangelism it just flows together I think you're right. I, I think, and I think what's interesting, as you sort of uh, suggested there, that applies not just to engaging Muslims, but to engaging to engaging anybody. You know, I do a lot of teaching and training on evangelism, and we're always saying to people at the end of those sessions, in terms of you know what are the next steps. You know, I always say to people, begin praying, praying that the Lord would, you know, open your eyes to people who are probably right under your nose, friends, neighbours, colleagues, classmates, people you already know that you may not have thought about. You know, don't you don't have to sort of think about you know going and doing street evangelism in the next town. It may be right in your workplace. Mm. There are opportunities to do it in a more natural kind of way. And then at the same time, on the on the Solas website last year for the for 2021, we ran a series where every other week we interviewed um, a Christian in a different line of work. It was a series we called Frontlines, and we spoke to everyone from pilots, engineers, teachers, uh, cleaners, police officers, a uh, whole amazing range of men and women. But what amazed me is we interviewed people about how they talked about their faith at work and what they were doing in terms of being salt and light in their in their workday worlds was that theme you've picked up there came through all of them had worked out how to just be natural christians there weren't people doing you know sort of standing up on the you know on the on, on the on the table in the cafeteria at lunchtime shouting about jesus they'd found ways to befriend their their colleagues serve their colleagues some were running alpha courses at work some were you know all kinds of different things but every single one was a kind of very natural approach to evangelism so yeah i think that's the thing and when you take that approach too the other thing i think is interesting with that paul is it also works for your personality because the danger is you know if you're nervous about evangelism you look at people who've got loud mouths you know li listen to you and i having this conversation they go oh, it's all right for paul and andy because they could talk the hind legs of a donkey <laughs> and persuade it to go for a walk afterwards um but you know i think of my mother for example who's been a christian for years but is a very gifted evangelist would be horrified of hearing me describe her that way she doesn't, doesn't think she is but she's really really good at hospitality and befriending people and she in her own quiet way the influence she's been is, is incredible but her style is totally different to mine and that's what i say i think we need to do pray for the opportunities look at the style the way that god's wired us and then be saying lord you know holy spirit how could, could can you can you work through the opportunities I, I already have in my everyday life. And then, as you say, evangelism becomes part of our DNA rather than the sort of, you know, thing we do occasionally when the pastor asks the volunteers to do door-to-door -door on a Saturday afternoon or something. So what, and a final thought from you in this then, what would you say to those who are hearing you say that and all they are seeing are the headlines of Christians who have been sacked or disciplined or challenged mm -hmm. at work? because they shared their faith with, I suppose in many ways, particularly perhaps a Muslim colleague, but also perhaps a Hindu or a Jewish colleague, and have been accused of, well, virtually bordering on hate speak because they challenged that person's faith. I think the first thing I'd say, Paul, is going, you know, I think it's important that the people, the folks here, you know, those stories are very few and far between. In fact, I can't immediately think of any. I've got a little file of, you know, occasional horror stories like, you know, that poor lady who, you know, wore the cross at British Airways and got in trouble. Or there's a nurse I know a few years ago got, you know, fired for 
for say offering to pray with a patient and there was the famous christian baker case in ireland i can't actually immediately think of many of of people sharing their faith with with folks from other backgrounds which is interesting um kind of thing and obviously what often will happen online is someone who will hear such a story and then it gets circulated and something gets magnified so i don't think it happens it happens that often first thing Second thing, I'm a big believer in what matters is how you do it. So absolutely, if you go in all guns blazing um, and make a huge, great nuisance of yourself, then stuff may happen. But of course, you know, if you get persecuted for your faith, it doesn't necessarily mean it's because you're being faithful. It could be just because you're being a bit clueless. Um, and I think the way, to, the way into evangelism in the workplace, I think the first thing you can do, and I borrow this phrase from a friend of mine, fly a faith flag at work you know, begin by letting people know that you're a Christian. One good way of doing that really easily is the notorious, what did you do on the weekend conversation? You know, a lot of Christians have honest with ourselves. We love talking about Saturday. Uh, we sort of cough and uh, splutter over Sunday morning. We talk about Sunday afternoon with kids. Um, but I think if we were much more public about the fact we went to a great church service on Sunday, it was fantastic. I love being with, with other Christians and stuff. People would go, oh gosh, Christians are, you know, really excited about church, first thing. Then with those from other faith backgrounds like Muslims, start by taking an interest. And look, if your colleague doesn't want to talk about their faith, respect that. Just pray for the opportunity. But if you take a real interest and actually build that friendship, then you're going to build a context, I think, in which you know, it's much easier to have those faith conversations without stepping on landmines. And then lastly, as, as well, I'm a great believer. We've touched a bit on this as we've gone today on the power of questions. You know, rather than say, well, I think you're wrong and here are three reasons. If you simply say, you know what, one of the things I've often wondered is and turn it into a question, um, things are very different because mm. you can always turn around and say, I, I didn't, you know, I never, I never came out and said, you know, I don't believe Islam is true. You just become a Christian. I did ask the following question. Um, interestingly, in years of working with Muslims, Paul, I've never once had a Muslim say they're offended uh, in anything I've said. I've had Muslims say they disagree. I've had Muslims say they think I'm going to hell, which is not an insult. They're concerned that I am um on their view of the world and so i think if we go in prayerfully and listening and willing to talk to, to listen as much as we talk uh, and uh and rely on christ and the spirit i think there are less dangers out there than people imagine i think it's one of the little rumors the enemy likes to spread around actually that you can't have these conversations um one last thought on this by the way <laughs> it reminds me when i was in canada we tried at one university, we wanted to put on a dialogue event, which was going to involve a Hindu, a Muslim, an atheist and a Christian. And the university authorities got wind of this and tried to shut it down. They didn't want this discussion happening because they were afraid you know, it might, it might cause tension. And it was only when a representative of the atheist society, the Muslim society, the Hindu society, the Christian society went to see the vice chancellor and went, we are all friends. We are united. We want to have this event. And he suddenly realized that actually maybe it's a good thing to have people yes. be friends across yes. the barriers and talk about their differences. And I think actually in the modern workplace, if we can show actually Christians want to create a space in which people can talk about these things. I remember actually one of my a friend of mine who works for a large company in the city of London, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, going to HR to ask if he could put an alpha course on. And the only comment, the only feedback was, well, absolutely. But obviously it would be open to anybody, right? And when he said, oh yes, it's open to Muslims and Hindus and atheists. It's open to anybody. They're like, Oh, absolutely. And you can even advertise it in the company newsletter. Their only concern <laughs> about the Alpha course was that, you know, it wasn't going to be Christians only, yeah. uh, which we, we thought was quite amusing. So yeah. I think there's a lot more openness than we realise. 
Now, you mentioned, because we need to draw this to a close, and thank you for your time today, but you mentioned that there are a lot of resources um, accessible through Solas, and it's only fair. He is, after all, the director of Solas, Dr. Andy Bannister. Just give us the details of the website so that we can access it. So, yeah, the website, Paul, is uh, the website is Solas, S-O-L-A-S, hyphen cpc so for center for public christianity that's our, our full title org solas hyphen cpc.org or if people can't remember that put my name or solas into google and the first thing you put solas in you'll come up with safety of life at sea that's not us um, i have to stress if you are drowning call those guys don't call us uh, but we're about second or third on google and there's all kinds of things there paul can we people can find videos articles stuff suitable for sharing with Christ, non-christian friends stuff that help get you more equipped in evangelism stories of others doing it and it's all free anything on our website totally free to use you don't have to ask our permission share it copy it do whatever you want with it um our prayer is that it just helps equip you to share your faith in christ with your atheist friend hindu friend or in this case muslim friend let's be honest Part of the reason that we hold back from reaching out to those around us is because we are worried about how it will be received. Worried that we'll upset people. Worried that we'll provoke a row. Worried that we might provoke some negative reaction that blows back on us at work or whatever. And yet, isn't that because there's a part of us is thinking about reaching people around us as though it were some project that we had to do? It was our duty. Actually, if we can start to see those around us as gifts of God into our lives, people that we can get to know, people that we can befriend, people who will bring things into our experience that benefit and develop and grow us, and people into whose lives we can bring our positives, our fruit sown to enhance their lives. Doesn't it become then obvious that by being friends and just living our faith in a natural and yet intentional and overt way, let's not shy away from it, we create the space for mutual respect, mutual understanding, and the opportunity for some of those false assumptions on both sides to be broken down and the Holy Spirit to do his work. You've been listening to UCB Life Issues. My guest today, Dr. Andy Bannister, Director of Solas. Andy, great to speak to you. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. Thanks again. I'm Paul Hammond. Why don't you join me next week for another Life Issues? Good night. <laughs>